Okay, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah 25. We'll look at verses 6 through 9 this morning, and the text is also printed in the bulletin. Um, Tim's out of the room. I feel like he pretty much preached the sermon for me during his uh, prayers of the people. That was pretty good. Uh, You can tell him that after. (laughs) This is the first time uh, that we've celebrated the Feast of Christ the King Sunday. Uh, as, as a special day in the church calendar, uh, that we've celebrated it with a, a sermon on the subject and also with an actual feast, right? We've got the potluck lunch after. I hope everybody can stay for that. So, um, so let me begin with a little introduction to the idea of the church calendar in general. The church calendar, the, the liturgical calendar, uh, it's an optional tool that the church, uh, for the most part, throughout history has found helpful uh, for reflecting on the gospel on a regular basis, on an annual basis, reflecting on the whole gospel. It takes us through the whole life of Jesus Christ every year. That's what the calendar is about. It's about Jesus. It's about his whole life. And uh, so you have the past, the present, and the future of the incarnate Son of God remembered or celebrated throughout the whole church calendar. It begins with Advent, the first part of the, the Christian year, the liturgical year, is Advent, which is leading up to Christmas. It's before Christmas. It's remembering the anticipation of the Messiah. And then you have Christmas celebrating the miracle of his coming into the world, the incarnation, God in the flesh, God with us. Then Epiphany marks his being made known, his being revealed to the world, uh, especially there. Um, sort of with the the visit of the Magi, the world coming to him to see him and to know him and to worship him. And then uh, that season, the season of Epiphany, extends until Lent. Lent marks the period of the 40 days, with an actual 40 days, the, the, the period of 40 days in Christ's life when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness where he resisted the devil on our behalf as our champion. And at the end of Lent is... Holy Week. Um, starts there with Palm Sunday, goes through, uh, goes through Good Friday and Holy Saturday, right? So the, the uh, commemorating his time in Jerusalem at the end of his life, leading up to his death for the forgiveness of our sins on the cross. That's what Good Friday is about. And his time then in the tomb on Holy Saturday. And then you have this wonderful turnaround, the, the wonderful news of his resurrection on Easter Sunday, followed by another 40 days, which again is sort of a literal matchup with the 40 days uh, that uh, between his resurrection and his ascension, his ascension to God's right hand as cosmic king, Lord of the universe. And then another 10 days after that, you've got Pentecost, the anointing of his people with his own Holy Spirit. And these are all big events in the life of Jesus that have already happened. For the most part, that's what the Christian calendar, the church calendar, is about the events of the life of Jesus that have already happened. There's one major event that has yet to happen, one event still future that we proclaim with eager hope to which we look ahead on the last Sunday of the church calendar, and that's his return, his return, the return of the king to set all things right, to raise his people to everlasting life in God's presence. The consummation of our salvation and our union with him, which the scriptures describe as a feast. In each 
uh, in each of the major days of the church calendar, actually, uh, it's a feast. It's a feast day. It sort of uh, parallels that ancient Hebrew calendar, the, the calendar given by God to the, the Jews to celebrate, to commemorate time with feasts. Time is to be punctuated by these feasts, and they're all moving toward that feast of all feasts on the last day. The church calendar does this. It takes us through the life of Jesus Christ because his life is our life. Because he's our representative. The story of Jesus is the story of God's people. It's our story. As it goes with the head, so it goes with the body. As it goes with the king, so it goes with his kingdom. So the church calendar is a new way of telling our story in the story of Jesus. It's the true story of Jesus. It's a new vision of our time and of our history that we find in Jesus. And it all comes to this this climax, this never-ending climax. On the last day, the day with no evening, the day where the sun will never set on our festival joy. So let's talk a little bit about that day, the Feast of Christ the King. Let me pray, then we'll read from Isaiah 25. Father, every time we turn our thoughts to you, as we consider your word, we are surprised. We could be transformed, we could be renewed. So we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit, that work that only you can do as we consider your word, to change up all of our thinking, to put a new song into our hearts, to change us from the inside out, to help us to respond to you, to the gospel, and to become more like our Lord and King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So where are we all going? What's our trajectory? What is our destiny? The world has only one reasonable answer. Oblivion. The star that we're circling is already dying. It's just a matter of time. Humanity is apparently accelerating our own extinction here on this planet. It's it's only a matter of time. Death is the inevitable end of the story. That's the trajectory. That's where we're going. Death is just a normal part of life. You're supposed to accept that. Except 
Nobody can accept that. We're all so afraid of death that we all try with Herculean efforts to ward it off, to keep death at bay, all while desperately trying never to think of it at all. We try to fight death without thinking about death. But everybody knows that it's coming. We all know that deep down inside. It's inescapable. It's the most powerful reality in the world. It's stronger than life, isn't it? Someday death will overtake you and it'll win the race. It always does. Death swallows up everything in its terrible maw. That is the end of our stories. That will be the end of human history. All of it summed up. Death. Eventually. And when that is written already on the final page of our story, what's the point of any of the other pages, really? If death is the trajectory of all of our lives, then what is life, really? It's preparation for death, I guess. Already sick and dying, pretty much. Life becomes nothing if it's just consummated in death. If death just comes along and devours everything in the end, life is nothing. But the gospel is a new story. God's true story of life that is stronger than death. Life that conquers death as its enemy. Life that turns right around and swallows up the devourer. And that life is found in God alone, in God's King, in the God-man, Jesus. We've seen the power of the Lord Jesus over death. He had authority to lay down his life for the sake of his people. He had authority to take up his life again for the sake of his people, conquering death for the sake of his people. He's risen from the dead, never to die again. And not only is he risen, but he is the resurrection. He is the life. And all who are united to him by his spirit through faith will be raised like he was raised. His story becomes our story, raised in everlasting triumph over death. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is not a bleak reality to be embraced, to be begrudgingly acknowledged. Death is superior. Death is an enemy, and it will not have the final word. It will be destroyed. And it's hard to conceive of, of a human life that really takes that into account. <clears throat> but the risen Lord Jesus will have this ultimate victory when he comes again, bringing his resurrection with him. It says in verse 8 of our passage, uh, it's talking about the king, right? This, this is, um, it's talking about Yahweh. It's talking about the God of Israel, our God, Yahweh, the one true God. And at the end of chapter 24, it's put it in, him in terms of he's the one who reigns from this mountain, from Mount Zion, uh, which is a picture of the very specific way in which the Lord is working in the world, the people through which he is working in the world, uh, the way and, and uh, the particularity of it through the, the Israelites, through the Jewish people. 
but saying that this Lord, this King, Yahweh, who reigns on this mountain, will swallow up death forever. On the last day, Jesus. Jesus is this King. Jesus is this Lord. Jesus is this God who reigns as the true Israelite, bringing salvation to all who believe in him. On the last day, Jesus will put an end to the only ending that the world can imagine. The world can only imagine our trajectory being death and oblivion. And Jesus is going to put an end to that entirely. What will it be like to bring an end to death forever? We could barely begin to imagine. But in order to begin to understand what it will be like to bring an end to death forever, we have to know something important about what death really is. Alexander Schmemann uh, was a, an Orthodox minister who um, uh, wrote a little book called O Death, Where Is Thy Sting? And in it he says this. I think this is actually maybe an excerpt from a radio broadcast that he did. But <clears throat> he said the most, this is a uh, quote on the front cover of the bulletin. The most important and profound question of the Christian faith must be how and from where did death arise? We've got to understand that. And why has it become stronger than life? Why does every human life end in death? Why does it win the day over us? Why has it become so powerful that the world itself has become a kind of cosmic cemetery, a place where a collection of people condemned to death live either in fear or terror or in their efforts to forget about death, find themselves rushing around one great big burial plot. You've got to understand something about death. In the scriptures, life is always life with God. It's a relational thing. It's not just a beating heart, pulse, electric activity in your brain, and you're able to move and breathe and things like that. It's not just that. Life is always Life with God, it's relationship with the God of life, relationship with the God who lives forever. It's being with the Father through the Son in the communion of the Holy Spirit. And when you're with that God and you're alive with that God, because He lives forever, you live forever. And that's eternal life. Death is severance from God. It's not just stopping your heart or being brain dead when you stop breathing and stop moving. Death is severance from God. That's the wages of our sin. Sin is a rejection of God. It's a rejection of His ways. It's a rejection of life with Him. And the result of that, walking away from God, it's the reward that's due to people who want to walk away from God. It's death. It's that separation. It's a life without God that goes nowhere. It's a life characterized by sickness and evil and meaninglessness, and it's a life that really is no life at all. That's the way the Scriptures talk about sin and death and life. So bringing an end to death means bringing an end to sin. It means bringing an end to our separation from God completely renewing our relationship with God. It means bringing peace and joy and love back into the relationship and ending the misery of living apart from God forever. Ending the misery 
of living apart from God. Again in verse 8, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, bring an end to this misery, bring an end to the death, to the separation from himself. Alec Motyer, is, uh, he's got a great commentary on the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> he says about the Lord God who will wipe away our tears. In all the dignity of his divine sovereignty, it's the Lord himself who will attend to our tears, moving from person to person until each eye has been dried. It's only in his immediate presence that sin and misery and death will be ended forever. So as Joe read in our New Testament reading, uh, actually this was uh, not what he read in the New Testament reading, but the couple chapters after from Revelation 21, <clears throat> I heard a loud voice from the throne. So this is God speaking, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So much language about being in his presence, being with him, living with him, dwelling. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. His, lo- his love is stronger than death. His life will swallow up death. It will swallow up our separation from him. And everything associated with that separation, the misery of it, the tears of it, and the source of it, the sin, our rebellion. He's going to swallow up all of it. You will dwell in his presence forever, transformed, so that you will never sin again, so that there will be no, no threat of separation from him ever again. When the Lord Jesus wipes away your tears with his own nail-scarred hands, you will enter into life with him that will never end. Then what? When the tears are cleared from your eyes and you look up, what will you see? What will fill your vision? Even, even for eternity. People in attendance from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All peoples. Every people group. Enemies. Reconciled. Old grievances. Forgiven. An abundance of food to be enjoyed in all our fellowship. The Lord, the King himself, setting the table for this feast. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. So the hungry will be filled with no meager fare, but with plates heaping full of the rarest of rare delights. Goblets sloshing full of the good stuff, the very best. I'm not sure what to say to you if you're vegans or um, if you don't drink, except that the point probably isn't so much exactly the, the meat and the wine, but the lavish, the extravagant, the royal nature 
the special, the rare nature of the provision that the Lord himself will set before us for our enjoyment together. After all, it's the togetherness that really matters. The togetherness of the feast really is the main point of food. Robert Capon has a great book. I've recommended it before. uh, The Supper of the Lamb, where he says, To be sure, food keeps us alive. But that is only its smallest and most temporary work. Its eternal purpose is to furnish our sensibilities against the day when we shall sit down at the heavenly banquet and see how gracious the Lord is. How gracious the Lord is to bring us together with God and with each other around his own table and to set this feast before us in his own presence. How gracious the Lord is. This banquet is provided for the sake of the glorious company. When the apostle whom Jesus loved had a vision of it on the Lord's Day, this is what Joe was reading as, uh, in our New Testament reading from Revelation 19. When John saw this, this moment, this feast, it was the wedding supper of the Lamb. With King Jesus, who is the Lamb, He's the one who was slain for us so that we could be reconciled to God. He's the risen Lamb of God. He's the bridegroom. And we are his people. We're the bride. And the the wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb is when we consummate our eternal union with him. We will see him. None of us have ever seen him. Our betrothed. Our bridegroom. We're going to see him. And we'll be with him. And we'll never be parted from him. The king's feast, then, is the, it's the emblem for everything finally becoming as it should be between God and his people. It's for heaven and earth becoming one in the end that's no end. The end that's a new beginning. That will never end. <clears throat> On that day, all will be righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is what is awaiting us at the end of history. That's our trajectory. That's our destiny. And we know it, in spite of everything the world might say, in spite of what we can see with our own eyes, that just really all of this is going to be consummated in death and oblivion. In spite of all of that, we know this because this is the final part of Jesus' story, and it's already been written down. If death were the end... Life would be empty. But if the royal wedding feast is the end, then this whole life becomes, it's that engagement period, which if you're married and you've gone through that engagement period, you know, can be difficult. It can be difficult. It's full of anticipation. Sure, it's pierced with longing. It's characterized by enduring. We just can't wait, but we've got to wait. Counting the moments until that day finally comes. That's our life now. Because out in front of us is this glorious end, the wedding feast. So we look to that future. We look with an eager hope. And that fills up our lives now with meaning. And it frees us to enjoy a good feast when we come across one. 
It makes us content when food is scarce, when we can't feast. It makes us to know the most important part of all of life and everything in this whole world, the most important part of it is the togetherness and the reconciliation. Because we know what the Lord has in store for us, he has all those good things in store for us. So we invite others to join us, to celebrate with us, to prepare for the great wedding feast along with us, to celebrate the fact that the Lord Jesus has He's already wiped away our sins by his sacrifice. He's already provided for us the wedding garments of his own righteousness. And he will wipe away our tears and remove all reproach and shame from us forever. We invite other people to come to know that and to celebrate that with us. We come to the Lord's table, which is given to us to proclaim the promise that one day we will arrive at his banqueting table. We will, because of his grace. The Lord has spoken. These are the true words of God. Blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, to the feast of Christ, the King. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let's be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this world is a place of terrible tension for us where everything that we see testifies to us that death is stronger than life. But everything we believe in your scripture says just the opposite, that your life will overwhelm and swallow death forever. And everything associated with it, all our misery, all our pain, all our suffering, all our grief, and all our sin, And we long for that day, and we look to that day. We ask that that day on which we see your Son, the day in which we will be transformed and be made like him when we see him, that that day would come quickly. And we pray that that day would have a great shaping influence on our entire life, that we would live in light of that day, that we would prepare for that day, that we would sing of that day and long for that day and tell of it, testify to it, and invite others to enjoy that day with us by putting their faith in the Lord, the King. We pray these things in in your name, Christ. Amen.